Welcome to the Ocean Cruisers podcast hosted by Andy H. This week, we are speaking with Stefan from the Paperboat Project on YouTube. We speak about how he started sailing, how he funds his lifestyle, including the work he does as a delivery skipper, his RYA Yacht Master course, which he took in his home country of South Africa, some of his recent journeys and adventures, as well as the refit of his 41-foot hardened sea wolf named Magic Woman. He spends most of his time in the Caribbean and the Mediterranean. You can catch up with Stefan's journey on his YouTube channel, The Paper Boat Project. Follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and download the audio on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Enjoy! You know, why did I get into deliveries? Um, twofold. First of all, because people ask me, how can you sustain this lifestyle of sailing around the world, living on a boat? How do you support yourself? And I mean, there's a lot of things we can speak about that. There's Patreon, there's AdSense on YouTube, and there's this mis big misconception that if you're a YouTuber, and especially a sailing YouTuber, because there are so many big successful channels and people know what type of money they're making in mm -hmm. the on Patreon, people think, oh, dang it, you know, I need to become a youtuber i'm going to make so much money that's not the case i mean i think yeah. that's for a different time how does it work how do you make money is it worth it but then for me going into the deliveries was how can i change my profession and still do a youtube show and sustain it and like that's brilliant content? there's a lot of people that want to know you know and i think deliveries are one of these types of mean means of income so twofold one income two content actually three really freaking good time so and experience and experience yes absolutely yeah. so like when you do the delivery because i know you're in the med doing the deliveries now are yeah. you given a specific time frame like you have to reach turkey or france by this date or are they so flexible so the answer is yes and no. It depends on the client and depends why the boat is being delivered. We, I just yeah. delivered a boat from Malta to Turkey, Marmaris. It was a catamaran, um, Fontaine Peugeot, which is going to be on the show. Oh, as nice. Uh, show all that really horrible weather. But the guy had a, a ship booked for the boat to be shipped to Australia. So we ah, had right. to reach there by a certain time, which anybody that's a sailor... And no <laughs> worth will know <laughs> is freaking horrible. So on YouTube, you'll see this episode unfold where we're really relaxed and we're kind of going through Greece and we're having a beer and <laughs> shit, the weather show. Life's up. good. Yes. <laughs> there's dolphins on the bow. We're three friends cooking nice. This guy made a rabbit, a freaking rabbit on the boat. But anyway. Uh -huh. So then the weather shows up and then the last leg, we had to leave because flights were booked. The boat was booked to go on this and we left in horrible weather. We, mm. we had 60 knots of wind on the bow doing one knot with the catamaran. In a catamaran. Whoa. Like you can walk faster <laughs> than we were going. Yeah, yeah, that's insane. Well, that's like with, with the sails out, engine on, just battling through it. So one engine on uh, gets more meaty than this. Like the guy said, please don't get to Marmory with a lot of diesel because I have to empty the boat. And it's oh, yeah, to, to get on a ship. Yeah, so yeah. On a ship. So we had worked out exactly how much diesel we needed plus some extra. But then when you're in 60 knots of wind going forward with engines, so the last 18 miles of this trip, okay, bear in mind, this was almost 800-mile trip. 
We did fine. The last 18 miles, we could see the entrance of Marmory. Took us three Then you just hours. weren't getting there. <laughs> Four hours, guys. It was horrendous. I was like, this is what my life's become. Why am I doing this? Like, <laughs> get or swim to shore. <laughs> it would have been quicker. That's correct. And in a catamaran as well, because most of those things can't go at wind. Although I think the Fontaines are kind of okay, but most of them struggle going at wind. There's no going to wind with that thing, my friend. That's yeah. where monohull is so much better. Yeah, yeah. Not wind. I mean, there's a conversation and also a different podcast for mono versus cat. But that's one day I was like, can I just please be in a very nice swan that can point 30 degrees right now? <laughs> That'll be the life. Where, where was that going from then? Where, where was it going from? What, um, where, 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 where did we start off or where did yeah. the it come? Yeah, so where did you start off in that cat? Because you said that was an 800-mile trip. So we started off in Malta, in Valletta. All oh, right, okay. And then we went through um, that channel, that narrow channel in, in Greece, because you can't go in the south of Greece. Yep. The, the winds that come roll over the hills and mountains are horrendous. So you have to yep. go north, kind of Sicily on your west, and then go through the Corinth Canal. Yeah. So we went through the Corinth Canal. That was an amazing experience. Yeah, yeah, like, it's brilliant. In the morning, the footage I have of that's amazing. You're going through this very narrow canal in the morning. It's so eerie. It was beautiful. Mm. It, that's, it's really old, isn't it? It's like a few hundred years old, is it? I'm sure they built it ages, because it's yeah. not natural, or they had to excavate it underneath or dredge it. I actually think, and I stand to be corrected, but one of the guys on the boat was kind of a historian. He said that it was built in a war, and right. it was hand-built, yeah. Hand-built? Yeah. Oh, my God. It's like the Panama Canal. If you see, there was like hundreds of people died building the Panama Canal. It was it was like a health and safety disaster. But that, I'm sure that was in like the 1800s as well. Like they built that thing years ago also. Something like that, yeah. I think like the, I think the United States built it or they tried to like take over that part of the, that part of the country or whatever. I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure that thing was like built in the 1800s or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been traveling full-time now for five years I haven't had a home um well my home is where I am or the anchor drops mm. uh, I've been traveling since I was 18 I had this bug in me this traveling bug and I tell you just on that point like everywhere I come there's some country that has an independence day I'm in Poland now their independence day there's on the 11th of November and nobody really knows that but like it's a massive big event and it's they're so happy they got their country back mm. and it's weird how you go to so many, even Malta, where I'm based right now, you know, they also have their independence from the English, from you guys. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the English tried to conquer the whole world, mate. Yeah, we, we did um, we did a lot of good things and then a lot of pretty questionable things. You know? <laughs> it depends who you speak to and where they were at the time or who their grandparents were. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I like to say we did a lot of good, but... Of course, but... History I'm tells a different story. You guys are the small little island um, on the west of Europe, and then everywhere you go, like, yeah, we're free from the English. Like, the English tried to uh, conquer yeah. and conquer, and I'm like, <laughs> even It's South crazy how such a small, tiny place, and bearing in mind, when all this, you know, when all this type of stuff was, was going on, we weren't, like, some technological superior no. nation. You know, we, we basically just had boats, and that, that was the only reason how we did it. Uh, but, yeah, it's pretty crazy how such a small place ended up, like, dominating so much of the world. It's crazy, but it's the same with the French. It's the same with the Spanish. I mean, every country has its its time of doing that now, you know. So, yeah. So, okay. So let's say, for example, the the deliveries that you're doing now that do they typically take place 
during the winter do they try and do those outside of season to avoid like the heavy tourism and stuff like that um i don't think so i think it's just basically on a personal basis of this guy the second delivery i'm doing now it's a guy in australia and okay. he has a little holograssi that he had sailed across the atlantic came to malta COVID hit, he had to go home. He really loves his little boat. He doesn't see himself flying back and sailing it to Australia. With this yeah, that's a big one. And so he contacted me and said, hey, there's a ship leaving Barcelona every two weeks. I'd like to ship it over. It's going to cost him $30,000 just for the shipping cost. Um, that sounds insane. Yeah. That, that, that sounds ridiculous. And it's a 30 little boat. It's a little 36-foot boat. So it's not even a big boat. Um, it must so be cheaper for him to pay somebody just to actually sail it over to... Well, I, I suggested that. I was like, hey, how about you give me a little boat and I'll take eight months to get there. I can create some really cool content for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, that would be good. He says, yeah, well, it's going to be probably $30,000 in the next eight months worth of, uh, you know, paying you for eight months. Or I don't, and he says, I don't have eight months of, of work. So he's kind yeah, of, yeah. so this is this situation. The previous situation was also kind of the same situation. The boat was going to actually Australia as well. Seems like the Australians have their boats in Malta. Um, <laughs> An Australian have, thing. Have you ever been to Malta? <laughs> I've never been, no. I've been everywhere around it. But when, when we're having a look at like some of the cruising grounds that we want to cover like this year, next year, I don't know what's going on. Nobody knows what's happening this year. But it, it's definitely one of those places that is going to be on the tick list. It looks incredible. How long did you stay there? It's a very weird place. <laughs> What, weird in terms of, like, the history or the people? How... Rock. It's this little rock in the south of the Med with yeah. the food is weird, the accent is weird, the, the Maltese people are just a type of, and I love them, but it's just their culture is so different. And you go, you go 50, 88 miles north and you're in Sicily and it's completely different as well. Like, they have yeah. this Arabic influence and they have, like, the food is just completely different to the rest of the med. And it, it, there's so many people on this little island and the drive yeah. is horrible, but there are so many boats. Like I've never been to a place with so much sailboats. I promise you, my friend, there is thousands and yeah. thousands of boats. Well, they do a lot of the races from Malta as well. Hmm. So the Middle Sea race is one of the biggest events that they have. And I was, yeah. part of, I was actually going to race in the event and then I hurt myself. But I, yeah, so the Middle Sea race is from Malta around, through the, uh, around Sicily, through that very dangerous part where Sicily and Italy almost touches, mm. um, and then around the Aeoli Islands, and then back to, to Malta. It's, yeah. So you were, how, how did that not happen? You were going to be in that, or you were going to be on one of the teams there, and then what, what happened? So it was twofold. I was invited to race with the a crew from Serbia. Okay. They had, they had a boat called Aziza and I was training with them and they were really happy to have me on the team. But then we kind of found that there should only be one language on the boat. Hmm. They were Serbian and they could speak Serbian. Some of the people didn't speak English. So the captain, Algunis is his name, very amazing captain. Like I learned so much from this guy, such an amazing human being, but he was then translating to me in English. And then he was speaking to them in Serbian and it just kind of took an extra three or four seconds. Which, yeah, yeah. When you're racing. Yeah. That makes a difference. 
So it was kind of like this unspoken thing on the boat that they're kind of irritated with a guy that doesn't speak Serbian. And they loved me. <laughs> I loved them. But like, I don't know the language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. can't pretend like I understand what they're saying. It's, and it's one of those languages where if you're not in the country, it doesn't really serve any purpose because most people from that country speak English or a different language when they go abroad. Correct. And so the only thing I knew what they were saying is Nastarovia, which is at the end of the sale. When we have <laughs> That's the part we're looking forward to now. <laughs> just like, I can't understand you. You can't understand me. We'll just get to the end of the sale. Good. Yeah. <laughs> when I had torn my calf muscle in Dominican Republic, and then I was back training and boxing because I'm a boxer myself. That probably people don't know. But in any case, I've boxed my whole life. And so I was boxed back in the boxing studio trying to shed some pounds to be a little bit lighter. And I hurt my calf again. And I spoke to him. I said, listen, I'm not going to be that good on the foredeck because I was going to be on the foredeck and mm. a helmsman. So right. that's my, my expertise is foredeck and helmsman. And you, going in between the two is going to be well, I difficult. Been in between the two, usually you will have a designated helmsman and then a foredeck team. But because I'm kind of versatile in both they wanted me to help out on on both and we had three helmsmen so in any case i wasn't going to be too good on four deck and then they said listen in that situation we have an extra serbian probably it's better you don't go i was gutted like i really wanted to do it but i i love the team and i want the team to succeed and yeah. i want them to have better time and i do think honestly with that i would say a grown-up um kind of, a uh, decision to not go they did very very well and i was oh, yeah? jealous that i wasn't there but i yeah they they finished third in their oh right it's good yeah. it's probably better i mean there's nothing worse you know when you're in a regatta and everybody's tried really hard and everybody's making up every second and then you slip or you let go of a line or something like you feel like oh, i've let the team down maybe we could have done like you know it could have come five seconds quicker it is the worst yeah and i mean if you think about cruising that we're doing sailing around the world uh, slowly six and a half knots you're sometimes stopping you're going it's completely different than racing like on the boat oh yeah no comfort it's 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 ruthless it's cold the conditions are sometimes horrible sometimes there's no wind it yeah, I mean, you're cold all the time, you're wet, you're doing hot bunks, you're eating pot noodles, you're operating on that boat. And if you slip or you're not strong enough, you know, you're not going to enjoy it or you might hurt yourself. Mm. It's, you know, I, I have this conversation with, with people a lot because I've got like within the sailing community, I've got two types of friends. I've got friends that have boats that are like 30, 40 foot cruisers and they have boats because they like going places in a yeah. boat and it's nice and it's enjoyable. And then I've got friends who like sailing and racing. And their experience and their interpretation of like what sailing is meant to be is like worlds apart <laughs> from what, like my understanding of it is you get on a boat, you do some sails, you have a nice time. Theirs is like screaming, running around, racing. We need to get on my, like, oh, this is stressful. Like, <laughs> this is not boat life in my opinion. Really stressful. And that's where you need to work like a team. And at some point, like the guys that's won the, the this is very interesting, the, the boat that's, and the team that's won the, uh, the this race that we're talking about, which is the Middle Sea race, is a family. Mm. So the youngest person on the team, I believe, is 16 or 17 years old, and he's the helmsman. But he's been sailing with his family since he's been a little baby boy. Right. And so what that means is you have to be so in tune with each other. Like, it's one yeah. 
working on that boat. Like you're looking at the sheet line and the guy knows it's not tight enough. You're looking at the sail and he trims it. You know, you feel the wind on your skin and on your ears. You don't have to tell the guys, guys, the wind's changed by 15 degrees, we're tacky, mm. you know? And so I believe that it is better to be like one person on that boat. But then to come back with, to what you just said, you know, you're trying to break everything on that boat, like tow mm. out the water, beat into the wind, like it is like crank those winches. It's a lot of fun, but scary. Yeah. It's good. You know what I find really good though, is like doing a couple of regattas, getting a bit of experience with that or like within the same week, for example, go and do the regatta, then go out on your own boat. And it's so easier. You know, you just like sailing. It's like, oh my God, I appreciate this so much more now. I'm not having someone shouting in my ear or, you know, people aren't rolling around on the deck and getting soaking wet. Um, yeah, it's good for experience. It's good for practice. Oh, it's, it's invaluable. It's an absolutely extremely invaluable uh, scenario. I, I would urge anybody that has the opportunity to do something like that, to do it. It's just absolutely crazy. Mm. You know, one of my friends, uh, he was walking on the dock in, um, in, in some place and uh, he's a marine engineer and the owner of a 78 foot or 65 foot swan or something was gonna do, what is it, the Rolex something, I forget what it was, but it's a huge event. And he was like, I'm so gutted about my boat, the boat won't turn on. And he's like, did you flip the main switches? And he's like, yeah, of course I've done that. He's, my friend said, do you mind? Can I just go check down for you? So he goes down the galley, he flips one switch and everything switches on. And the guy felt so shit. He's like, do you want to come on the race with me? And he said, yes, <laughs> on the race. He got to go free on this Rolex. I don't even know which one it was. I, I should actually ask him. But then he said also, you know, most amazing experience of his life. Like you can't ever not take an opportunity like that. Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun there. So he, he got on that trip basically because he knew how to turn a boat on. Exactly. Like best crew member ever if the boat goes off he, he can turn it back on lads. we need that guy on the boat <laughs> then, then he is a, a marine engineer himself very very uh, qualified and he's got a lot of uh, expertise his name's Yaku he's also from Malta South African guy um, mm. but yeah he got a free ride and he said the guy like those winch handles one winch handle is as much as some people's sailboats cost I mean yeah yeah you know, and they're massive. The winches on those things are huge. <laughs> yeah, they're insane. All right, so I'll tell you what, let's just take it back to like the start of your sailing journey. Like where, where did that begin? Was it, Because I know, like you've mentioned before, it, it, was, it was an interest that you had since you were a really small kid. Um, where, where did you actually start sailing? All right, it's a very interesting story, and I think it's something that I'm very passionate about, and that's what this YouTube show that I've created called The Paper Boat Project is all about, and people that follow me know that the paper boat is, is a metaphor for a dream. The paper boat is that one thing that you still want to achieve, you know, that one thing that's lingering in the back of your mind going, will I ever do that? And when you have a fight with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or you're like just at a low point, go, man, I should have just done that, or I'm just mm. going to go do that, you know? So for me, I'd always been interested in traveling. I come from a family of travelers. Okay. We, we are people that move around. Um, my uncle bought himself a sailboat 25 years ago in California, a Swan 47, which he had saved up money for working in America as a contractor in Aspen. And he'd circumnavigated the world three times with his two little kids and his wife. So Jabez and Annalisa, my two cousins, were born in America, 
and they were just waiting for their passports. They moved onto the boat, and he was crossing the Atlantic with diapers stacked to the roof. Okay, wow. his babies strapped onto their seats uh, so they can't fall over in heavy weather. Mm. They had never had a house until the kids were late in their teens. But I knew of that, but I never knew him. So he was never home. He left when I was very young. Yeah. I always thought about sailing. I always thought about uh, traveling, going places. Well, I started a career and I was quite successful at what I wanted to achieve, which was have a house and society's norms and um, a wife and a car and a cat and two dogs and what have you. And I was an investment specialist and I really enjoyed it. I had a TV show at a, well, I was sometimes on TV, but I had a radio show that I was presenting in the morning on finances and stuff like that. And I loved it. Mm. At some point, it just got to a point where I'd reached kind of what I wanted to reach. And I thought to myself, there must be more to life than this. Like I have it and it's, it's cool. And I've got some of the accolades and what have you, but I wanted to do something great with my life. It was always in the back of my mind. And then I, my wife had an affair. Um, she, she, I don't, she was a model and she was always with other people like celebrities and what have you. And somehow I think there's a lot of, um, it's difficult when you're in that kind of scene There's always, uh, what's the word in English, like lured to something better or greater or whatever. The grass and is I, always greener on the other yeah, side. Yeah, I think so. And I don't think my grass is that green. Maybe she felt yeah, It rarely is. That's the thing. It's, it's, it's rarely ever greener on the other side, but people, it's the temptation. The temptation probably. And so I think she made um, you know, a difficult decision and I think she regrets it. Maybe she doesn't, it doesn't matter. But that, why I'm speaking about this, that's a scenario in my life when I got a divorce was like, okay, I done up to this. Am I going to do this all over again? Get a new house, get a new girlfriend, get married again, have my two kids. Or am I going to go pursue that dream? And I decided one night around a fire with friends, I looked at my friends and I said, guys, I'm going. They said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go sail around the world. They're like, oh, when, you, when will you be back? And I said, I don't think I'll be back. Mm-hmm. And I sold everything I had, gave away so much. Did you just walk out the barbecue at that point and... Yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, stood around the t- fire, and I looked at my friends, and uh, they were like, "So, what are you going to do this next year?" And I said, "This is what I'm going to do," and they kind of chuckled at it. But this one friend of mine, he believed me, and he phoned me every Friday and say, "So, Stefan, that dream of yours, are you still going to do it?" And I said, "I'm busy doing it. I sold everything. I quit my job. I was so scared, Andy. Honestly, I was scared, shit scared. It takes a lot of balls to do this, but I did it." I took the little money I had of everything I sold. And remember coming from South Africa, you know, my currency is minus divided by 15 when you arrive in America. Yeah. Yeah. So I got there. And at that time, my uncle was off his boat and the boat was in the was in the Caribbean. So I lived on his boat for six months. This is the Swan. This is the 47 foot motor Swan. Right. And I took my, my little, piece of paper and pen and I started writing and making charts of the boat and how it works and phoning him. Hey, this line, what is this? Hey, how does this work? How does that work? This winch, but the boat was just on anchor. I sailed with mm. him a little bit, but I didn't know anything. So how well, old were you at this point? Like, What, what was 30, your age? 32. Okay. Right. 37 now. So it's five years ago. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, and then I just, taught myself kind of everything on the boat. Now listen to this. So we sailed the boat to Curacao. 
We're on in Curacao and he leaves the boat and I'm on the boat. And so people come to the boat and they're like, wow, you got a nice boat. Did you sail here? And I'm like, yeah, I sailed here. And they're like, do you want to come sailing with us this weekend? It seems like, you know, you've sailed here, so you should be able to sail. So I just keep quiet. And I go on boats with people and see how they sail and take notes and make sure mm. I understand, ask questions. Five months later, I got on that boat and I sailed it from, ba from Curacao to Klein Curacao and then to Bonaire and then to Venezuela. The first trip I ever nice did on trip. was a solo trip. I did myself on a 47-foot swan. What I know now, I'd probably never do it, but then I was kind of like ignorant. Yeah, <laughs> held it. Night passages, everything, and and I always remember the first time I I put I took a mooring ball in Bonaire. It was the first trip I completed, and the feeling of accomplishment was so huge that I was hooked for life. Yeah, it gets you. Yeah, especially when you're soloing, like that first passage you do, and it's everything works out. The you know the the weather is good, the wind is right, the swell isn't that bad, and it it, it feels so rewarding when you get there. I have goosebumps talking about it right now, and I'm like, I wish I could show you. It, it was, it shook my core, it shook my soul, it spoke to who I thought I'd always needed to be. It spoke to that small little boy that was folding that little paper boat, playing with it, and thinking about that trip never knowing that I'd ever do it or accomplishing it. And that moment, I knew that this is what I need to do. Not getting married, not making money, not having a big four by four had ever given me the accomplishment feeling and exhilaration of that. And by that, I'm not saying it would, not, it would be the same for other people, but for mm. me, it spoke to me. Yeah. And so that was the start of my journey. How can I do this? Because this is not my boat. I don't want this boat. In fact, I can't afford this boat. And so I sailed the boat to Puerto Rico. And as I sailed in, I saw Magic, the boat that I bought. And I looked at yeah. her. And the crew that was on the boat said to me, Steph, there's your boat. And I said, what do you mean? They said, you're such a big character. You're like the, They said, you're like this Captain Ron. Have you seen Captain Ron? I said, no, I don't know who that is. They're like, you haven't seen it? And I said, no. They're like, you have to buy that boat and see the movie. And I said, okay. So evidently I, I did buy the boat and that's how I got it. <laughs> yeah, we know about that part, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's so, I, I'm, I'm not pro-divorce, you know, at all, but it's um, a lot of people, like when they have this natural instinct in them to travel and do something different, just not have a normal life and it's been in them since they're a kid. Like a lot of people get to that point where they're in the 30s, they're in a marriage that probably isn't that great. And it's it's that moment where they realize it's like, okay, divorce is not a good thing at all, but it, it can push somebody to do what they're actually meant to do rather than just, you know, sit, sit in a three bed somewhere, watch TV, do the normal stuff. And for you, it works. I mean, it was obviously the wake up call. It, 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 I look back at it sometimes and I was very sad at that point. I come from a very traditional conservative country where you go after school, you have get your degree, which I did, you get your first job, which I did, then you get your girlfriend, you marry her as soon as possible. I was a kid when I married, I was 26, I think she was 21 or something, like, it was very young kids, like, you don't know much. And You're not developed, like, as a person, you don't know who you are when you're in your mid-20s, like, you're learning. And so, I, I look back, and I'm like, I'm so glad I'm not in that anymore, it was like a kick in the ass, going, now what, dude, like, mm. so... So I was very happy that that had happened. Not that, like you said, pro-divorce or anything. And this is not at all to say to people, if you're in a bad situation, like divorce your wife and buy a sailboat. Like, yeah. 
I can tell you is the sailboat will give you as much trouble as break and moan, but um, she never talks back. So. <laughs> so no, um, and then the difficulty is then to find a life partner that would uh, do something like this with you. You know, that's kind of difficult. Not all the women out there have the the type of uh, romance towards sailboats that we have. It's. Um... It, it's a romantic life in a way. It's just only certain parts of it are romantic. You know, it's like an hour a day where, you know, you're on anchor and the sun's setting. That's really nice. But yeah, t you take away that side, it could be a bit tough. It, it's funny because it's like when you watch YouTube, you get some channels that show you the real part of living on a boat, which in some cases is rough. Maybe you can't sleep at night because there's loads of swell in your anchorage. Maybe the boat's not working, whatever. And then you get some channels that show you this incredible lifestyle which it is and th that's what people live for when they decide to do this journey and you know sail around the world on a boat but it can be tough it, it can be very tough especially if you're a family or if you if you're in a relationship and you're on a small boat that's hard i mean once again to make maybe an analogy you know you see this beautiful dress and the guy standing in front and there's doves flying and it's a kiss when they get married and that's what mm. they show you about marriage but they don't show you that there is some tough times you have to work hard at it and a relationship i feel like or a marriage or a partnership or something is a lot of work and it's not always sunshine and roses but is it worth it yes sure it's worth it so yeah. same I, I think that, you know, you have those moments where you have the beautiful sunsets and the dolphins on the bow, but boy, do you work hard for that. Yeah, you have to, yeah. And it's, you know, I, th I think the entire, it, it's really rewarding if you can get to that part in your life. And some people do and some people don't. And it's, it's for some people and it's not. But if you can get to that part in your life where you, where you have a partner and you both know you're in it together and you know you can be sailing around the world together and you're watching those sunsets together it's like what a great way to spend time on this earth Absolutely. you know it is it is brilliant yeah. so right you've just done your was it the yacht master was it offshore or the coastal which one is it you did i actually went up to the highest one which is the ocean oh right okay brilliant yeah so so that's what i did yeah and what encouraged you to do that well i think it is um, I, I like to have a lot of information about things that I'm doing and I always challenge myself. So it, it wasn't to wave around a ticket to say, look what I have, I'm the best sailor or something. It was just, I had sailed and I wanted to know more. And I, I have this really big need to teach. I enjoy teaching people or rather sharing knowledge. Not yeah. I like to share. Uh, the knowledge because I'm, or especially things I'm passionate about. So I went back to South Africa. And also the other, the other thing is that people ask me, how do you do this lifestyle? And I wanted to be open and honest with them and say, listen, I can work while I'm doing this, but you need a qualification. So mm. I did that as well. Um, I went up to Yachtmaster Ocean. Is it worth it? 100%. Is it expensive? Yes. Is it tough? Man, it's very tough. Did you start off competent crew and then like day skipper and then work your way up to that? Because you have to have a certain amount of miles to even do that course. That's the natural progression. Yeah. But because I had so much experience already, I didn't have to start with competent crew. I So competent crew would teach you what's port from starboard, um, what the lines are. Safety on a boat. Safety on a boat. That kind yeah. of things after doing some long passages, etc. Uh, I knew that. So I went straight into, which is the Yachtmaster 
coastal or offshore course, but I could qualify for coastal because I had more than two and a half thousand miles. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And then after that, you have to do your Yachtmaster Ocean, which is um, a very long course, very technical, a lot of math equations with sextant. Um, they want to look, they make sure you can sail and that you're safe. If you speak, I have a new respect for a Yachtmaster offshore or ocean because I know what they went through. Yeah. So, yes, it's tough, but worth it. For you, what was the more difficult side of that? Because you've got a lot of sailing experience, but I take it up to that point, you you didn't have much technical knowledge of how to do that. So it's like owning a car and driving your whole life. And at the age of 37 or 35, they say, okay, now we're going to put you through the driver's test and you fail it, but you've been driving your whole life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I could sail a boat, but you couldn't ask me what the cardinal beacons was in Iola A and Iola B, which means in Mm. America, there's a certain way of displaying it versus Europe. I didn't know that. The green marker is on port side in one part of the world what about uh, lights at night when you're coming across fishing boats um, what about draft like things that just make you such a better sailor was things I never knew about look mm. they couldn't fault me on sail trimming and sailing I could sail up to a mooring ball without an engine I'd sailed a boat up the east coast of America with just an outboard motor I mean I know how to sail a boat but can you do it the way they want you to do it? Can you dock a boat without an engine? Those are the things they teach you. And then it's chart plotting. There's blind navigation. They'll put you down in the boat and make you navigate through a reef from one island to the other without being able to go outside and just on the point, like navigate through um, reefs and islands. And if you, if you hit them, you're out. So this is like what, with a GPS and a map? And that's it? No GPSs. Like you're just a map and you've got your compass um, inside and you can see your bearing and you go. Mm. Mm-hmm. That sounds really dangerous. <laughs> but somebody's on deck watching out anyway. So, but you know, the boat. Like you're giving the helmsman, uh, okay, in 30 seconds, we're going to turn to starboard side and tack with 40 degrees and keep that bearing on this degrees for seven minutes. I'll tell you when the seven minutes are over at that point we're going to tack over to port side and then we're going to keep this bearing so you you have to communicate you have all to the maps in that as well the calculation that like yeah, a lot. and then at some point the the guy that was the examinator would say oh shucks we didn't see this there's a reef in 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 200 and point two of a nautical mile, make a decision now. And then you have to report or we starboard side, where are we going? Are we going, how can I keep my crew and my boat safe? Mm. So that was, yeah. The first time I was, I was, I was more like anxious about my exam than like my finance stuff that I uh, studied or my psychology degree end exam. I, I was like shaking with fear. Yeah. And on the day I remember we got out and the wind was howling, my friend. You'll see on YouTube, like it was screaming. I put three reefs in the main and very two reefs in the head sail. And they don't tell you anything. They're like, okay, we're gonna go from here to there. Like you make the decisions. And I remember getting out and he said, there's a mooring ball. We can't go further, sail up to that mooring ball. And I want you to touch that mooring ball with the bow softly, fall off the wind and sail away. 
Okay. <laughs> and I came up to that mooring ball and the wind was howling. We were heeled over. I told the crew to go and sit on the port side because we we're on a port tack. Sit on the port side, try to bring the boat down. And I was like shaking. And I touched that mooring ball like so softly and I fell off. And he looked at me, he said, that wasn't good enough to do it again. And I thought, what, <laughs> what was wrong with it? What, what was up with that? Well, that. He said, no, you, you fell off so quick that you would have never been able to, to get the line in the water to, to tie up. Okay. So like so technical, but then I got it right and I felt like a million dollars and yeah, the beer afterwards tastes really amazing. <laughs> when you've gone through all the stress of it yeah the uh the relaxing beer tastes all that better yeah I, you know when you're doing a course i like it, it's funny because you mentioned you know you were more nervous than when you did any finance course it's like subliminally you've got on your mind okay like let's say for example this is real life and the instructor isn't there and i have my family on the boat 100 you know i mean i have to get this perfect and, it, and it's so you, you know you just you're doing a test in high school or in university you fail you can take it again right you, you know you've lost time but there's, there's nothing going on in the back of your mind. You know, could people die if I got this wrong in real life? Do you know what I mean? While you're going up to that, you'll ask you, okay, so what what does the um, red, white, red lights mean? Uh, what is three, three red lights on each other? You have to say restricted by draft, or you have to tell them exactly what the lights is as you're reading the wind coming up to this mooring ball. It's just throwing those out at you whilst you're under this insane amount of stress. <laughs> yeah. So one, one of the most, one of the most irritating parts about doing the RYA courses is remembering what the lights are meant to be for boats. Like is a, a yacht above a certain amount of meters, a fishing vessel, a trawler. I'm like, it's a boat, avoid it. You know, <laughs> like whatever lights are there, just avoid it. Looks big, avoid it more. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm really happy that I did that. It's been, it's given me a lot of um, uh, confidence and it is also opening doors for me. Like I can do mm. deliveries, I can share knowledge. I do think people take you a little bit more serious if you come there and you have a Yacht Master Ocean qualification for sure. Oh yeah, yeah without a doubt. I mean, it's, it's the gold standard in terms of like any type of offshore qualification. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you make good money doing the deliveries? Like, how, how, how are you paid? Do you get paid every week or is it like per delivery? How does it work? It's per delivery that you get yeah. paid. And I, I charge $280 a, a day. So 280 mm. or 280 euros rather here. And that's for a 24-hour cycle because obviously for 24 hours you're sailing. And that's like, in, is that industry standard, that range? I don't know if it's industry standard. I've heard people ask $250. I just worked out what my what I think I'm worth, first of all, and second of all, how much it really takes out of your day, what you're paying for, then sometimes there's crew that you have to pay for, um, et cetera. So I, I charge 280 euros a day, which people are very happy to pay. Um, mm. Especially also, I mean, I am a Yacht Master Ocean and that qualification cost me almost 10, maybe more than $10,000. Yeah, yeah. So you know that you're getting somebody that's qualified and so I charge 280 and generally the guy would also stock the boat with, with food, which you're not going to go overboard and buy um, Wagyu steak and stuff like that. But and, I suppose one really cool thing about that as well is like, like that's a 24 hour job. A lot of the time you sat around, you could be working whilst you're working. You could be getting paid to do something else whilst you're actually earning money doing that. Oh yes, for sure. I mean, I could be chartering, I could be selling the house. 
euros for 24 hours, but then you get three crew on the boat. And then I pay some of the other guys sometimes. Sometimes, like I have a, um, a crew member that's going to come with me now. I said, I don't want to get paid. I want to do my yacht mass. I need some miles. Can I pay mm -hmm. you in that situation? But look, it's a big responsibility. It's not, uh, and in the med right now, the weather is horrible. Yeah, it's, it's rough. One yeah. of, it's very rough. It's one of the most uh, dangerous places that you can sell in the Med Sea right now in, in winter. And it's a big responsibility, you know, and I make the decisions with the owner. I'll tell him, this is the weather window. This is what I'm thinking. Are you happy with that? Would you make that decision yourself? And then you have to go. And then sometimes a client will tell you, listen, I think you should do this. But at the end of the day, the responsibility lie with you. Mm. You make your decisions on somebody else's dream boat. It's it's a big responsibility. Yeah, from an insurance point of view as well. Like I um I have a friend who uh, basically made some bad decisions. He took a boat out that really shouldn't have been taken out. Uh, he had a bunch of girls on board. He was doing the big guy thing, and uh, the engine ended up cutting out because the engine was a mess, and he ended up on the rocks. the The boat was actually fine, but it needed a lot of work doing on it. And he went to the insurers, and then when he got to the insurance, they were saying, "Okay, who was on the boat?" What type of safety briefings they did they receive? You know, did, did you enter the information in your logbook? What life jackets were available? You know, were they served? Like they went through everything. Okay. And luckily, because he just bought the boat, everything on the boat was actually fine. Um, but yeah, like at that point, you were like, wow, you, you do actually really need to follow the rules. You need to be careful when there's crew on the boat. And that's your responsibility. The owner won't tell you that. As a young yeah. you need to know that. You need to yeah. check. You make sure that the crew is safe. Anything that goes wrong on a boat, even if the guy that's cutting the vegetables cuts his finger off, it's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> you, my friend. It's nice. You know, I always see these captains with uh, slogans like the captain's word is law and refer back to the captain or I am the guy or whatever. Like, that sounds kind of cool to be Jesus on the boat, but... And you are, but it's a massive responsibility. Yeah, if everyone's life is in your hands, then you can see why they want to make sure everything is done the way it's meant to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, right. So let's talk about your boat because <laughs> you have this incredible boat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, you did have anyway. So, yeah, so let's so talk about it. Older, and I think that it's going to become come as a surprise to a lot of people. But the reason I okay, so the boat. What was the boat? The boat was, and I don't want to go too deep into it because I'll get sad. But she was a forty-one foot Hardin Sea Wolf, mm. beautiful boat that I bought in Puerto Rico, refitted her, and then sold it to Dominican Republic, and then left her in Dominican Republic for quite some time to um, to go and pursue something else for a while before I decided to come back. And when I got back, she was in really bad shape, and me yeah. and friends really spent a lot of time and effort and lots of bottles of rum getting her back into the water. It was about five months. People said it would take 12 months. And I said six. And I just got under the six months mark. And I was so proud. That boat looked immaculate. Yeah, it looked incredible. Incredible. The people would stop and take photos. And like people were complimenting me on the boat. And us and the team felt so proud. And then we're on a mooring ball. And we're ready to sail and we can't go anywhere. Lisa, one of the girls that came to, leave, to help, she left because of coronavirus thing that she needed to attend to a family member in her state. Me and, me and Kevin were there like, okay, so let's go, but we can't go anywhere. Everything's closed. So we're sitting, 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 sitting. It's kind of an anticlimax when you get this beautiful boat in the water and you can't go anywhere. You can't even sail in the bay because 
So, so the this is like the COVID restrictions were really heavy of, there. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to go to Central America because I've been around the Caribbean. And mm. going east, as any sailor know, is difficult in the Caribbean, so go west. And uh, I just couldn't go anywhere. And I am a little, the religious kind that just went on my knees and said, Lord, now you need to please help me out because now I don't know where to go. Like, I don't want to sit on this boat in the third world country. It's hot. It's like humid. It's not fun. Been here mm. for five months. I want to get out of here. And one night I was sitting in the cockpit, just looking at this beautiful boat and somebody knocked on the side with a dinghy. And I thought they wanted to come and say hi or congratulate me like a lot of people were doing. And they said, listen, we love your boat. And I said, thank you. Is it for sale? And I said, no. <laughs> I've just spent six months of a life sweating for this thing. <laughs> hey, what are you talking about? It's like somebody wanting to take the first bite of your burger after you've been tea for a week. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Of course it's not. And they like, they said, listen, we're looking for a nice boat and it's beautiful and we'd love to make you an offer on the boat. What is it worth? And I said, I gave them an amount and they said, we could do that. And I said, well, let me think about it. And they left and kind of felt like my sailing dreams tumbled down because this was my dream boat. But then the more I thought about it, the more I decided, you know what, maybe it's a better thing because, you know, what am I going to do? I can't go anywhere. I can't sail. It's not a beautiful bay to be in. I'm tired of being there. I've got my yacht master. How about buying another boat? So I sold the boat to these people and I'm still in contact with them. They send me photos of the boat. Um, it's in Canada. They sell the boat to Canada. Wow. Uh, they were able to get the boat out of there in some sort of a, a, a one week uh, period where the, the port was open. They were not allowed to stop in Bahamas or anywhere. They did a straight trip to Canada. It's Canadian mm -hmm. citizens. So they were allowed to go back to Canada. Right. Um, I'm not American, I'm not Bahamian, I'm not Canadian, so I couldn't go any to the, any of those places. You just have to stay put in so, that bay. So they'd left, I'd sold the boat, and then I got this phone call from a guy that says, hey, I've been following you online and I uh, want to make you an offer. How about sailing 30 or 40 different boats in the med and come create some content? And I said, mm. that's amazing, where? He said, Malta. I said, I'll see you in a week. And then how I got there in a week was some kind of a crazy story. I got locked up in Dominican Republic. Oh, yeah, yeah. You mentioned it. Right. Talk about that. This sounds interesting. You want to know about this. Right. So this is where it gets really meaty and beefy. Are you so, technically a felon at this point or are you, you're a free man? There's no crimes. Free man. I'm not a felon. I've got nothing against me anywhere. <laughs> uh, so I then sold the boat, did a nice deal with the, the Spanish lawyer, got the money. But then what happened was... They wanted to do a wire transfer. This was on the Wednesday they knocked on my boat. On that Monday, Dominican Republic were going to be locked down for another 28 days. Okay. Was video as well. Like we were listening to the radio and they said, lockdown from Monday for another month. Airports closed, everything closed. That was the Wednesday that they wanted to buy the boat. The Monday, I needed to be out by the Monday. The Thursday, we did the deal and they wanted to try and transfer the money from Canada to me wire transfer, it would, and I wasn't willing to leave the country and give my boat over without having money in my account. Well, and that was like money in your account in South Africa or in Dominican? In South Africa, in South Africa. Yeah, yeah fine. So okay. It would take like five business days and blah, yeah. blah, blah. And I like the people and I do trust them, but I didn't think, you know, it wasn't the right decision to leave my boat without the money in my account. Okay, I got, so I decided no. And I said, listen, do you guys have cash? They said, yes. I said, well, you're going to have to give me cash. Um, otherwise, we're not doing this deal. I'm leaving the boat here. So they gave me the cash. So I'm walking with cash 
um, from the Dominican Republic. I think I know where this. I've been to Dominican Republic, so I know where the story goes. So I'm I'm hiding this big chunk of cash in my jacket. Um, now I've got all this paperwork to say where I got the money from. There's a lawyer's letter. There's there's IDs. There's everything. Everything is kind of really nice. I made sure that it's really cool. So I flew to America to go to Malta from the Dominican Republic, got to America, declared the money. They looked at me, this guy with this long hair, like I had shoes on with the laces looking different. And they're like, how do you have so much money on you? And I said, well, I'd sold my boat. I showed them the papers, very happy with that, no issue. But they said, there's one problem, sir. You can't go to Germany onto Malta because Europe is not accepting anybody that stopped in America. I said- Oh, so even like transited for America, they weren't? I oh, so no flights. Transiting. I'm, my flight was two hours from, from landing in America. I could fly to Germany and then on to Malta. I said, no, Germany will not accept you. You have to go either to your country, South Africa, or back to Dominican Republic. South Africa is closed, locked down. I can't even go home. There's nowhere I can go. I have to go back to Dominican Republic. So I fly back to Dominican Republic the next morning. So South Africa weren't letting their own people back into the country. No, I did wow. not go back to my own country. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Crazy. So I rock up in Dominican Republic and do you declare the money? Yes or no. And I was like, I don't mind declaring it, to America, <laughs> but I am not declaring it in Dominican Republic. So I hide it in my pocket because like, okay, let's just not even get into the third world country, like how it works. There. But in any case, so, so then they look at my visa and they say, but um, you overstayed your welcome. You're stamped out of the country. You're not stamped into America or into Germany because you came back. So you're technically like in the middle of two countries, but you're back in our country. We don't know what to do with you. And stamped out, can't move anywhere. Coming back with a stamped out stamp on my passport, but I'm back in the country and I don't understand how to to." You do what do they do with the situation? So they put me in a room in customs and immigration, and over the course of three days, so many things developed. I was hiding my money. Like so you've got cash stashed all over your body at this point. On my <laughs> on dollar bills, and like yeah. hiding it from them. Then there was Haitians that would jump the border, that they would lock up and bring them to this place I was staying at and put them in the room at two or three in the morning. I wake up and I hear some rattle and there's four Haitians in the, in the room with me. And I'm like, where do you guys come from? And they speak Creole with me. I thought of phoning my friend Kika from Sailing Uma going, cause she's Haitian. Like Kika, could you just help me here please? Cause I didn't know what's going on. So three days later, the South African government got involved. They phoned the consulate. They spoke. They got a Spanish interpreter. They spoke to them in Spanish. They asked them, why are you keeping our citizen there? They couldn't explain to them because they didn't really know what to do with me. Mm-hmm. And the more we explained to them, I stayed in your country longer than I should because airports are closed, ports are closed. They understood that, but they didn't know how to do the paperwork on that because it's mm-hmm. a new thing, right? Like it's coronavirus. They hadn't had a case like that. Yeah, yeah. They weren't angry at me. They weren't treating me bad. They were kind but they just don't know how do we stamp you in the country or out and in when you're, when you left and you're back. So somehow they figured it out. Three days later, I was out. Um, And then I flew to Malta. It's crazy because like 
you know, that type of situation, you'd be like, okay, if it's in like, you know, Dominican or somewhere in Asia or South America, you'd be like, okay, in, in countries where they're not so developed when it comes to like tourism or transport or, you know, people moving around, you could expect it. But this this was going on everywhere. Like I had I had friends that were trapped in New Zealand who'd gone traveling, they couldn't leave the country. I had friends that were in Singapore and trapped, Dubai and trapped. There's so many cases of people like, okay, you can't go anywhere, but you can't stay here. We don't know what to do with this person. That's exactly the point. Like this coronavirus thing came with so many different, you know, regulations and legislations and situations that people just didn't know what to do, how to deal with it. They want to do the right thing. And they told me, they're like, we're sorry, we can't let you go. We don't know what to do. And I'm like, I must have taken three days. And the government, I walked out of there and there was a voice note on my WhatsApp and I didn't know the number and I listened to it and I'm listening to the voice of our president on my WhatsApp. And I'm like, what? This is kind of an upgrade. Like, how did this happen? Um, it's actually not the president, it's the vice president. And um, so that was kind of kind of interesting. And uh, they helped, and I was really, really happy that they did. And from there, it's really good. Smooth sailing. I did a lot of nice sailing, blue water, and the season coming up on my show called Season Three Malta. Uh, mm. It's jam packed, action packed, lots of sailing, blue water, like that stuff that we spoke about earlier that people think sailing is all about that's what i'm doing in the next season and i needed that because after five months in the dominican republic and that's also a conversation for what it's like fixing a boat there it's an hour conversation um i needed to get out of there and sail a little bit what did you do for getting parts when you're in dominican republic because i mean there was a lot that it was a major refit of that boat in a way it wasn't just painting it and cleaning it down it was a huge refit they improvise, they, they, they can make anything that you need and they are super willing to help. And you go into this back street, back street, back streets, back streets, and then there's 15 chickens running around, but that guy at the end of the road has a welding machine and you go there and your friend speaks to him in Spanish and draws on a paper what you need and the next day you've got it for $5. So just amazing craftsmen, just like in the middle of forests and stuff like that but you have to build relationships. You won't yeah, yeah. with the backstreet, backstreet, backstreet guy at the end of the road that don't speak Spanish with the 15 chickens running around has a welding machine at the back and that can actually weld the steering column to your boat. Mm. You won't know that. Yeah, you need so, to be involved with the community and get so, to know people. So I got involved and made so many friends. I started community outreaches. I, I had this big house uh, farm that I rented or actually was given to rent for a like next to nothing. And I would always have barbecues for the locals. I had the mayor of the town visit me once a week and have a coffee with me on the porch. And I had become friends with him. And so he'd try to open doors for me as well. If I hadn't had that, it would have taken me 12 months like everybody said it would. Yeah. That's really interesting. So like, just so for example, the, the, the boat we saw it being refitted and then when you first turned up there was water in the bilges and there was some water damage to the wood and stuff how long had you left it for and like what condition was it what, what was it when you actually left it like how left, much did it deteriorate let's say it was in so if, if we use 100 percent gauge at 100 percent show horse condition it just came out of the the the, the factory i think my boat was in about an 80 percent uh, condition when I got to Dominican Republic after I refitted and made it look nice for five or six months in Puerto Rico. A friend of mine, Fred Long, he's 79 now, probably eight, pushing 80 now. Him and I did that on the boat. And um, also a guy I met in Puerto Rico. 
Then I left her there for close to three years. On the hard, yeah. That's a long time. I had gone back to her twice to go and see that she's fine and everything. But everybody that knows a boat will tell you that's very, very um, irresponsible. Mm -hmm. And I know it, it's on me. But I also felt like the marina didn't give a shit. Like they didn't look after the boat. They didn't open it. They didn't. And I was paying good money. I was paying almost $300 a month to have a boat there. Mm -hmm. Which over three years, you can make that sum as a lot, a large amount of money to come back. Yeah, yeah. To the boat and it's just completely trash. There's water up to my knees in the boat when I come back. The floorboards are falling apart. Like it was, the, there was oil all over the boat. It, I looked at the boat and I thought to myself, there's no way. I got off the boat. I got to his, to his boat and I just kept quiet for like 24 hours. I couldn't speak. I just didn't know, should I do this? Should I sell her? Should I just not waste my money on this? Should I just go buy a new boat? I was sad that I had done this. I was just conflicted. Then I woke up one morning with so much energy and I thought to myself, do this you can do this just do it just do did it. you do like a full assessment of everything that was necessary to be done to get it back sailing again i walked through the boat and i would sit in one space and look at everything and then i think okay this and then that and then this and then that and then oh but this and then that and it was so overwhelming that i stopped and i put a price tag on it i said said this will probably cost me fifteen thousand dollars to refit if i do everything myself not pay for labor and i thought what can i sell the boat for and i could sell her for a little bit more than that and i thought if i could do that this would be i would be a shell of a person if i walk around from that and i would be mm. disappointed at myself so i never after i decided i was going to do it i never looked back and doubted myself not once that i think i shouldn't have done it i just kept going and going and going sometimes i worked maybe 18 hours a day and slept three hours and the next morning, I'd just be right back there. Felt like I had a hangover because I was so tired. You know, you like thick head, but I would just have my head in the bulges and carry on and smile and make videos. And I told myself, I'm going to get this boat out of here. I mean, it looked rough when you first got on there. And when, when, you, when you ended up dropping it back in the water, it looked gorgeous. It was incredible. People had come over to me and said, oh, you're back. I, I wanted to buy your boat from you. And I said, oh, you wanted to buy the boat? I said, how much? They said, oh, I'll give you $3,500 for the boat. It was such a slap in the face that it actually gave me some energy to make that boat a $25,000 or $30,000 boat again. People so that was when it was in Puerto Rico and it was filled with water and a complete mess? Dominican Republic. Oh, yeah. All right. Okay. So when it was a complete mess, somebody was like, there was this Dutch guy that said, oh, I see some potential in your boat. I'm retired. I could spend two or three years, you know, chipping away at the boat. I'll give you $3,500 for the boat. And mm -hmm. I was gutted. It was like somebody telling you about an ugly child or something, you know. And I just fought hard. I fought really, really hard to get that boat back. And I must be honest, I'm, at the end, I patted myself on the back when I moved, looked back and I had tears in my eyes. I, I cried. Like when she, when she went back in the water, I teared up and I was just like, wow, you're so beautiful. And I, I was just so proud of what we had accomplished. No, no, it was incredible. I mean, turning in the speed in which you turned it around as well, and you got it back in the water. Really impressive. So, um, I mean, what's, what's next? What type of boat do you want to get next if you are going to buy another boat anytime soon? What are you thinking? So, yeah. So when I came to Malta, I decided to sail as many different boats as possible and create content on them and show people what it's like to sail different boats and, what, and then look at what boat I want. 
I don't think that the Formosa, which is the boat that I had, the Formosa or Harden Sea Wolf, is the right boat to sail around the world with for mm -hmm. many different reasons. People can uh, disagree with me, but I've sailed it and I've sailed many different boats and I kind of know what I think I want. So I would like something up to 50 feet, which is a lot of boat for one person, but I'm not hoping to be alone forever. And I think that's a kind of a generous size to either do charters as well and and sail around comfortably. Very comfortably. That's the, I think that's the ideal range for like a very comfortable life on a boat. This is what I want to do. I, I probably, hopefully one, I also want to have a family and maybe have a kid and, and work myself up to that. And I don't want to buy, sell, buy, sell boats. So I'd hopefully like to get a 50 foot or 45 or something like that and fit her nicely. And um, that's, that's the next thing. So I'm looking for a boat right now. I made an offer on a boat in Antigua this week and it was accepted. And then the people had sold the boat the next day for $4,000 more just to get a little bit more of commission. I was so upset and gutted, but I do believe in my life, everything happens for a reason. So that boat was probably gonna have some problem and that's why I didn't get it. So currently looking at another boat in San Francisco and there's one or two other boats in the mid that I'm going to try and make an offer on and, and get. So are you looking for like a typical old school blue water cruiser now? Or are you looking for more of a modern type of boat? Like a Formosa is a very old school type of blue water boat. Yeah, the Leaky Tikis are, they're solid boats. Look, they're thick hull, they're strong, but they take 16 knots of wind to move them. Yeah, if big heavy things. If you're in Antigua and you say, hey, let's hop over to Curacao or let's quickly do a day sail tomorrow to here or there. It's a lot of effort to get the boat going. And I don't want that. I don't want to be one of those sailors that it's such an effort to move. I want to be able to pick up the anchor and she's ready to go. With the Formosas, and I've had one and I sailed it, is there's always something breaking or leaking or like, not that no boats don't ever need uh, um, maintenance, but uh, just felt like it was a little bit more than I wanted. And mm -hmm. so, yes, I'm going to look for a boat that I could just up and go quickly and... and uh, Find that and so sailing racer is something that i'm looking for something that can point high to the wind um something that's fast something that i'm proud of and looks good and um yeah let's see if i can find that oh, that sounds like the perfect boat that might not exist yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but my ability to sail the catamarans and the dufours genos benetos i've sailed Bali's, fontaine peugeot's I've sailed the um hobo grassy the swan obviously i've sailed many different hansa and mm. this and coming up you see me sell so many different sizes and types of boats to give me a feel of what i want not only walking into them but sailing them mm. feeling the ability what do they do in hot, tough weather i had a really tough weather coming from sicily in an episode coming up back to malta and i was on this boat that had a massive mainsail and i realized man i i need i need a nice big mainsail because if there's not a lot of wind i need to be able to move out of here that's not something i was looking for that i didn't really think of before it's it's such a difficult decision to make and uh, you know you, you have to combine what, what do you want from a house like mm -hmm. I, I want bedrooms i want a kitchen that i can cook you know this in or that in. i need a stove and then it's like okay what do i want from my car which is what you'd go to work in or travel somewhere putting those two together like <laughs> it's just a strange like decision making process to go through. You know what I mean? It's like I want a bedroom, but then I want a deck, and I want big sails, but then I want like you know free toilets. It's like, it's crazy process you have to go through. It's a very personal decision, and 
So you need to just kind of figure out what you want. And in the next season, like I said, I, I show people the difference between this and that. And I might say I want this, but the other person might want something completely different. So it's just personal. Mm. So out of the boats that you've um, that you've been working on in the Med, like this season, which, like you just mentioned, like a, a bunch of different brands there. Was there any particular boat and particular brands that you were like, okay, this is superior to anything else that I've been on so far? Yeah, I think that... For me, I don't generally like the production boats that much. Like the Genos and Benetos and Dufours that are being made right now are kind of being made for charter. So they look yeah. nice. They look nice, but they've got the laminate wood. They've got um, these cupboards that after two seasons of charter, they don't want to close that nicely anymore. So I kind of like the more old school, rugged, hard wood, real wood um, even the Genodes and Benetos, the older ones, like this 1996 yeah. Beneteau, um, Bruce Farr design. Bruce Farr is obviously a very well-known uh, designer from, he's in, I think he lives in Australia right now. But in any case, so there's a Bruce Farr and Beneteau. I'd buy that thing. The old Bavarias. You walk in that boat and you feel Yeah, very solid. Boat. Yeah. Like thick wood. And like it's, it's a solid thing. But you get into a new Bavaria. The whole electronic system is... Um, electronic like I mean like it's like an iPad there's, yeah, no, switches. Did, yeah. there's no switches and I don't like that yeah you know? I've, I've looked at them in the new one I'm like if there's something wrong with that how do you take that out and do, do I need to like plug it into my computer to figure out a problem <laughs> do you know what I mean? like diagnosis or something three o'clock in the morning the other night we lost our engine and we had to switch off panels and what have you and alternators and that was fine but doing that in the Bavaria I wouldn't even know how to freaking turn on that iPad looking thing Look, I am not that old. I'm 37. I'm sure a 26-year-old could be would be like, yeah, I like this much better. But for me, so so to answer your question, I like the more old, solid build, rugged, not made for charter boats, if I can call it that. So do you think that you could go towards like an older type of production boat, or would you yeah. want an older type of production? Actually, one of the boats I made an offer on in Antigua was a 1996 Bruce Farr design Benito mm. with solid wood inside and you can see it's a solid made boat strong mm. uh, the design is, is good it's made to point it's set up for single handing it's got electric winches and stuff like that so that's the type of things i would look at yes the charter market has just changed the way production boats are made so much because it's like because it's become such a huge industry now like a lot bigger than it was 20 years ago because chartering boats is cool it's you know it's a, it's a new thing to do like you know a group of 20 year olds might go and charter a, a boat in the med whereas 20 years ago that just wasn't a thing to do at all it wasn't popular it's just the, i suppose they're trying to make too much money they're skipping on the type of materials that they're using they're skipping on the process in which they go through and you can tell a lot of them are designed for relaxing on they're not designed to sail like you can tell when you walk in them huge open spaces do you're like this thing is lethal if you're out in the middle of the ocean like this this is not a boat it's an apartment there's no handles to hold on to there's no place to latch into when you're when you're making food in hot dev weather they're made to look nice they're mm. made for people my opinion please um, i don't want to upset anybody by saying that but my opinion is that they're made for people that aren't sailors that come in the boat and go wow this is nice it's kind of like a little apartment and an old salty sailor that sailed with these little 36 footer boats around the world go down and go this is horrible you know, mm. so it's just a matter of what you want to do with the boat, I guess. So that in terms of your future, have you 
have you made a decision on where you want to be geographically or at the moment are you thinking let's find a great boat and then just see where see where that takes us and start from there yeah so on that question it's, it's tough for me to answer because i i feel like i go where the opportunity lie and i go where it is fun where i think i'm gonna go so i thought of staying in the, in the caribbean and then i got an opportunity in malta and now I'm like, wow, it was so beautiful. Then I'm doing deliveries and I find myself in a different space. And if I buy a boat and she's in the Caribbean, I might just sail around the Caribbean a little bit and maybe cross the Panama and go into the South Pacific. Mm. So I don't really have a set plan. I just know that I want to continue with this lifestyle. I want to continue making amazing films about it and share knowledge. And it's wherever I find I'm going where it's fun and where it's interesting that I keep going. I don't think I'll find myself in the continent of Africa very soon. Um, I don't think I'll find myself in Southeast Asia very soon or in the South Pacific, like in Tonga and Fiji and the Galapagos and those areas, just because geographically, I don't think I'll buy a boat there. Mm. So um, I think the next step would be what the next step is, which is getting the boat and where the boat would be from there on, I'll make a decision. And I think like the Caribbean as well, there's so much availability. There's so many different islands you can go to to get things fixed up. Um, yeah, it is a good place from that perspective. If I go back to the Caribbean, I want to do it different. I don't want to go to the islands and the places that everybody is going to. I want to go to the windward side so where no, not a lot of people go. I want to go do real hardcore sailing and go to the other side of the island, like on the, on the, on the east side of the islands. And um, it's much more... It's much tougher and it takes it requires much more uh, thinking and planning but i think that's um there's some unspoiled places that not a lot of people have seen well what's on your uh, tick list like you, you i mean you've sailed in a lot of different places and, and especially like with the work that you're doing now is there anywhere where you where you're thinking at some point in my life i want to be on a boat in that location um it's a question i get a lot and i think uh, and I want to really do the South Pacific. And I think it's a really big commitment because once you start sailing in the South Pacific, you are big, big um, dist um, distances away from the next destination. So it's like a 15 day sail to get to the next place. Mm. But I genuinely want to go to places that's unspoiled where there's not a Walmart and where there's not a West Marine. Uh, I don't want to go to a place where I can, you know, bump into somebody that I saw a week ago. I'd really like to go to places where there's no one. Um, mm. Run around with no food, uh, with no clothes, and eat food from, from the land, and just kind of go back to our, our roots. It's like an authentic experience. That's what I was dreaming of when I was a little boy. I was never dreaming of having lobster at a restaurant. I was dreaming of conquering and exploring. That's my heart. My heart is to share, do that and share it with people. Because you're a traveler. Probably. That's why yeah. I'm yeah, <laughs> deep in your heart. Well, listen, man, it was great speaking to you. Thanks so much for your time. And yeah. I think everybody's going to appreciate learning a bit more about you as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we went way over time. I really enjoyed the conversation and I think you're doing a great thing. Thank you. No, it's great, man. So listen, all the best. Uh, everybody appreciates what you're doing and putting this great content out there and sharing your experiences. And uh, I, I wish you the best of luck in what happens. And, you know, I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Absolutely. And come sail with me anytime. If I get this new boat, I'll let you know. And if you can come jump on, I'll be fine. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I might call you up for that one, mate. Depending on the location, we'll, we'll see about it. I might give you a ring on that one. <laughs>
Like I, Andy, I bought the twenty-six foot boat. Ah, I guess I'll skip. But yeah, I'll give that one a bit. Twenty-six foot boat at the Cape Horn. Yeah, I'll, I'll skip that one. But maybe, maybe the next boat. Yeah, that was cool. Though. There's a there's a wealth of information I'd like to give, and there's so much more we can speak about. But I think uh, we'll do that in the next time. And thank you so so much. If you want to support the production of these podcasts, you can become a member of our community on Patreon, where you will be able to access extra content, interact with our guests, and become a part of the show.